Kia ora and welcome to Deloitte New Zealand's State of the State 2019 podcast series. I'm Dave Lovett, Deloitte's Public Sector Lead based here in Wellington. These episodes have followed the topics from this year's State of the State articles. In it, we explore inequities from different perspectives, how these inequities affect us and what we can do to reduce them to build a fair future for all Kiwis. This series has been written in partnership with Victoria University of Wellington's School of Government. In this final episode, I'm joined by some of my Deloitte colleagues who've authored articles on this and last year's series, partners Adithi Pandit, Linda Mead and James Clark. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Thanks, David. David. So we're going to be wrapping up the series by discussing our conclusions and recommendations from Article 8, aptly called Opportunities for All, Recommendations for a Fairer Future. If you haven't already, you can read and download this article from deloitte.com slash nz slash state of the state. I'd like to start by giving you each a, an opportunity to reflect on themes from the articles this year on inequities and last year on well-being. What, what are your thoughts and insights from being involved in the evolving discussion around how we grow well-being for all? Adithi, maybe to start with you, you co-authored our article on inclusive growth. Perhaps you could start our discussion with some thoughts on what you learned from writing that article and and maybe your key takeaways from it. Thanks, David. Um, I found it really interesting to reflect on the relationship between well-being, growth and equity and really thinking about the growing challenge that people are bringing to the growth word um, and the expectation that people are starting to have at societal level that growth isn't actually a positive word necessarily and actually when it comes to equity, when it comes to well-being, uh, that word still carries a lot of connotations of fiscal and economic growth and it doesn't tell a, a big enough story. Uh, So I was really heartened to see the public debate has moved quite far and even in the process of writing the article, unearthing the different opinions that are out and about both in the New Zealand and the international context. So that gave me um, some hope for where we might head to. Yeah, I think think there was some some real questions being asked um, around the article about uh, is growth in and of itself an objective that we should have? Uh, for growth to be good, does it have to be balanced? Uh, or actually, is growth not necessarily a good thing and we should set our goals somewhere else, for example, on the distribution of well-being? James, you, uh, you wrote an article on digital inclusion, our Article 7 this year. What, what were your thoughts on that article? What, what did you take away from it? Yeah, a couple of things that I found interesting. Um, one was it brought out for me, and I think it was a thing that came through in other articles, um, how easy it is for us to follow existing patterns, frameworks, rules, you know, that we've set up for ourselves, uh, and by doing so only reinforce um, and perpetuate existing inequity or exclusions. Um, I mean, that that's clear in the digital world, but just as clear in, um, in other domains. Uh, so that means we're going to have to be prepared not just to, for example, 
reallocate or reprioritize things within the current machinery, mm. the, the current machinery will fight that mm. um, or, or, or simply just won't support it mm. um, to the extent required to make any meaningful difference. So we're going to need to challenge that machine. I mean, I think the assumption mm. about growth is an example of that. It's pretty mm. baked in, mm. uh, but it's going to prevent us from, um, from doing the right things. Mm. I think just to riff off that a little bit, um, the existing pathways conversation, I think it's actually one of the powerful cases for diversity and inclusion in mm -hmm. uh, governance and decision-making as a, as a kind of enabler for equity because the established pathways really resonate with the people who've been around the tables so far. You know, often uh, the, the use case of uh, the white, relatively affluent, possibly male decision maker, uh, the use cases that resonate for them may not be the use cases that are really required for the groups we're most trying to shift the dial for with equity. So you need those people who challenge and see different use cases around the table. Yeah, and I think that particularly came out, uh, James, as, as I read your article, thinking about, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, designing services for digital, but these are services that are fundamentally not non-inclusive to start with. And unless you rethink the, the concept of those services and what they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to achieve those things, then you'll just end up with a digital version of a service that doesn't actually meet a fundamental need. Mm -hmm. and it might be more accessible, uh, and it might be more inclusive, but it doesn't actually meet the needs. Yeah, I, I certainly found that not only do we need to think about a more inclusive way of designing mm -hmm. services, so how do we provide services, and there, there are lots of good ways to think about that, but possibly more important is which services are we actually investing in and where are we going to make the most difference? And I, I found that most of the attention is going on how to design or build services uh, and less so on grappling with how we actually prioritise and, and invest in services to make the biggest actual difference. Mm. Yep. And Linda? You've been involved in wellbeing and living standards framework discussions uh, now for, for a few years. Do you think we've got a handle here in New Zealand on how we grow wellbeing? Uh, I think that word New Zealand is quite important in that question, actually. Uh, so I would say that uh, although we have been having this discussion for some time now in New Zealand, um, the where it seems to have gone to in the last couple of years is uh, quite a strong emphasis on connecting conversations in New Zealand with conversations in other parts of the world, um, most notably the OECD and some of the, uh, the goals and measures that they have and I think perhaps a little bit of overemphasis on uh, having a set of measures in New Zealand that really align with uh, what others in other parts of the globe think well-being means um, and I think we've pr probably lost a little bit of authenticity in that process so I would probably be encouraging a move back towards um, Stats NZ and Treasury and others really thinking quite hard about what well-being means in a, in a very authentic 
uh, genuine New Zealand context, uh, particularly thinking about some of the measures and um, uh, analysis that was done in surveys like Te Kupinga from a few years ago, which looked at a Māori perspective on, on you know, well-being and what matters, but not just that, uh, because otherwise you know, we're at danger of just having a whole bunch of measures for measures sake, uh, but not actually helping us understand whether we're moving forwards in a, in a genuine sense for New Zealand. Mm. Um, so that would, be, that would be my first thought on that. Um, I, I think having, having said that, I mean, having a, a, a set of domains and measures sitting underneath that and actually doing some good work about measuring progress and looking at trends over time, you know, it's a good thing, it's a good thing to be doing, but it's not sufficient in itself. Uh, it doesn't actually achieve uh, any outcomes other than if you assume that people uh, look at those and make some changes to their behaviours as a consequence of looking at those measures. Um, I don't see all that much evidence that that's actually happening yet, uh, but maybe that's you know something we can expect to um, you know emerge within the next year or two if, if as as those reports and, and so on start to become much more public uh, domain in, in, in the vernacular of discussion. Mm. And, and as we start to identify what, what levers we need to pull to actually get you know, get some movement on those indicators. That's right, yeah. yeah. From, from my perspective, we've identified a set of conclusions and insights that listeners can read in our final article. One of the key insights, I think, is that you can't legislate for well-being. It, it takes a combination of on-the-ground action as well as high-level policy changes being prepared to reallocate resources between different priorities and to different different needs. Um, but both of those are required together in, in order to drive real outcomes for, for people. Adithi, what else might we need to do to enable a real focus on well-being for, for individuals, for families, communities? Yeah, it's a great um, challenge to us, really, because um, I'm, by my personal sort of bias and preference is usually to think about things in that systems lens and um, to that type, you know along those lines you usually get to well we're going to need um, system incentives and system kind of regulation and legislation to shift but the reality is that actually systems are complex and the same system actually may respond very differently when you have lots of individual actors or actors outside of government regulation actually starting to behave differently. So it can be tempting to see everything as a regulation problem and regulation absolutely has a, a role to play, but there's also a role to play for communities and uh, groups of social movements actually, you know, kind of moving the dial and helping us move things. I think where we think about wellbeing and equity together, the question becomes do all groups who may need to kind of be able to do those things, have the capacity to engage in movements. And when we see communities who are under-resourced, uh, and I've seen the phraseology deliberately under-resourced as a very interesting way of contrasting with poverty as a word, uh, if your community has been under-resourced historically, then most of your effort as a community is going into surviving rather than setting up these movements to enable you to thrive. So I think the challenge again becomes how do we give communities the resourcing to become active um, and it may not be regulation, it may be grassroots work, um, but it still needs resource.
You've, you've just uh, reminded me of our resilience uh, series of articles. Was that two years ago? Mm. I'm just going to reread yeah. that now. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, because actually that was a big piece about resilience, wasn't it? It was actually, do you have the resources and capacity to not only have well-being, but actually secure your well-being mm. through shocks? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we talked about every, every shock is a household shock because mm. it, sh it shows up in the household. Mm. Yeah, and, and so then the opposite is true, which is if you want to intervene to address the, the things that are contributing to inequities, uh, contributing to an absence of well-being, uh, then you have to look at the household as a potential place to, to intervene or, or provide support. Um, James, one, one of the things that we say in the conclusions article is that um, data and reporting, particularly you know, quite granular reporting, will create greater visibility of uh, gaps in the distribution of well-being and, and inequities. Um, we've had that reporting for a while mm. in a number of areas, and yet inequities persist. What, what else might we be able to do that can you know, keep ourselves on course, hold ourselves to account for addressing these persistent inequities? Mm -hmm. I think um, you're right, there has always been a level of reporting uh, and of course you can't report or measure everything um, so part of the art is what is the most important thing to measure and for example at what level are we measuring it that the aggregates and averages um, really aren't going to be very useful um, for addressing equity in particular um, but our other challenge I think is that the reporting in and of itself achieves only a small amount if we have some sort of independent or mandatory reporting framework that gives it visibility and weight um, and obviously you can go further with a binding set of targets or, um, or indicators um, those things are tricky to get right, but climate is an area where those things are you know, being more aggressively instituted. Um, we, we don't have those teeth in other areas. Yeah, and you know, turning that visibility of the gap into a desire to act and, and real action then it, it comes down to the commitments that can be made and I guess some sort of external order of perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that, that's another example of why the averages and, and aggregates are unhelpful because uh, they often lead you to think about action from, a, from the top down and, and address the, the wider issue when actually um, at a more granular level you could make a significant impact often with, with less change um, if you focus on a small and smaller mm. units. Yeah. Yeah. And Linda, some worry that a, a focus on well-being, uh, because you know trade-offs are involved, we can't do everything. Mm -hmm. But some focus that uh, worry that a focus on well-being will erode our economic growth. Uh, but a recent Deloitte Access Economics report from Australia, I know, suggests that there are significant benefits to a more inclusive and diverse society. Should, should we be worried? Should we be worried that we have to trade off economic growth to get better well-being? 
Uh, well, if you look at the, the domains of well-being, I mean, clearly there will have to be some trade-offs in some cases. So you, you can't necessarily have, for example, uh, improved um, you know, environmental sustainability is the most obvious one, probably, in all cases, at, with, with no cost uh, to parts of the economy. And we're certainly seeing that play out in very live, almost real time right now, as we look at the passing of the Climate Change Act, as it is now, for example. Uh, so how do you, do you put a stake in the ground and saying, well, we're not going to go backwards on this particular measure, even if it means that um, certain businesses may go out of business altogether, uh, people may lose work, um, or not? Or do we actually think, well, no, we're going to try and find a measure of, you know, a measure of balance between some of these things. So I, I do think that there are some hard choices that have to be made and you can't, you can't have a situation where all, all boats rise all of the time, that's just not um, going to be feasible. However, as you said, you know, there are, um, it, it's not the case equally that by focusing on well-being you're necessarily going to erode economic um, growth or prosperity, absolutely not. And, and so there are some areas where you can clearly point to where well-being is demonstrably improved for uh, parts of the population um, in, for example, areas like uh, diversity, inclusion and so on, um, which also benefit economically and um, really, the, you know, I suppose you could argue there might be a few pockets of losers in that sort of conversation, but by and large, everyone's a winner in that sort of situation. So you can actually have both, um, you know, both, both well-being in a, in a particularly demonstrable and evident way and economic growth. Uh, so it's not one or the other in that sort of situation, uh, but it might be in, in some other situations. Um, I mean, my curiosity, David, is as you look back at this series of articles, is there anything that surprised you about the, um, the research that we undertook, the conversations that we had, or indeed the recommendations or conclusions that we arrived at? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a really good question. So I would say the, the two things in there that uh, stood out most for me. The first is... Uh, that none of the inequities that we uncovered were a surprise really to anybody. So uh, the, the research, uh, the data, the reports highlighted pretty much the same things uh, that people were expecting to see. And so though that is that specific uh, communities, specific groups in our population uh, within our country uh, face significant disadvantage, uh, whether it's health or social welfare or uh, the justice system or education, it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, all of those things are pretty much known and uh, they're pretty much persistent over time. And they aren't necessarily getting any better. Uh, even as the averages, you know, as, as the boats rise, um, the boats are rising, but uh, there are significant segments of our population who do get to benefit from that. So uh, I guess the fact that it's known, and yet we can't find ways to do anything about it, I think is, is quite remarkable. Um, the second thing is that uh, it's the same people. 
so the same people who are disadvantaged on measures of educational performance and outcomes uh, are the same people who turn up in the same different statistics mm -hmm. around health outcomes, um, housing, justice, um, and yet through no fault of their own, find themselves, as, as Aditi was mentioning, continually impacted and therefore uh, linking back to, I think, what James was saying around resilience, they and their households really have no resources to draw on to respond to that and therefore require some level of intervention by the state or by community organisations or somewhere to provide some kind of assistance. It, it's not like inequity is evenly distributed and any one of us has, uh, has the same chance of, of uh, facing disadvantage. That, that's not how it works. It tends to accumulate like drifts and uh, piles up and because of that, it make, that makes it so much harder to address uh, without actually fundamentally being able to intervene and support uh, those communities, those individuals and those families uh, to, to a different outcome. So if it's if, if it's true and it's you know a little bit depressing, isn't it? But if that's true, where is a good place to start? I mean, is it is it with the business community? Is it you know typically inequities are addressed through um, redistributive policies of government or universal provision of services like free public education, free healthcare, etc. To try and address some of those things. But if we've been doing that and it hasn't worked what do we do now to what's you know what's the what's the innovation or the disruption that's going to drive a different outcome uh, to i think to aditi's point before which is ultimately this is systemic so you can't do just one thing mm. um and so a high level resource shifts and policy shifts are absolutely required and all the things that we've been doing to date i think are part of the part of the puzzle but also uh we, we mentioned in here uh, in, in the conclusion article, the work of the Southern Initiative and other place-based initiatives that I think um, have, have a significant part of the solution, which is those micro-level initiatives yeah. that impact on people's everyday lives and outcomes. Mm. Uh, they understand that uh, it's not about the individuals uh, and it's not always about the context that they're in, but it can be about the, the small things that you can do to enable different outcomes for mm. people and families. So sort of local solutions for local yeah, that, problems, that's right. idea. Um, where that often fails is where that's not supported by higher level policy shifts that result in resource allocations. Mm. And so you know, very often the local place-based initiatives are uh, operating on minimal funding kind of around the edges of mainstream policy Whereas if they were at the centre of mainstream policy and supported by it in more active ways, I think that would be a much more successful uh, set of interventions and, and strategies to get a better outcome for New Zealanders. I think that's just about all we have time for in this episode. Thanks again to our guests, Aditi, Linda and James. You can find all of our State of the State articles at deloitte.com slash nz slash state of the state, including last year's still highly relevant series which looked at growing well-being. If these topics have resonated with you and you're interested in how you and your organisation can make a real impact in growing equity, 
Get in touch with me or any of our article authors via our website or on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. Na mihi nui.